0: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.
1: KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold, with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 Everyday Anteaters. Good day, Anteater Nation. Welcome to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and today my very special guest is Professor Emeritus Everly Flesher. Professor Flesher has had an amazing academic career starting way back in the 1950s at Yale University studying chemistry. He first came to UCI in the 1970s as a professor and would become dean of the chemistry department. He then abandoned ship, so to speak, from UCI and spent most of the 1980s at the incredibly beautiful University of Colorado at Boulder, want to hear a lot more about that. And from there, he moved on to UC Riverside as Executive Vice Chancellor. That's a big job, similar to our UCI Provost, Hal Stern. He then returned to UCI in 1994. There's just a ton to talk about here, so let's just get into it. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Professor Flesher. How are you today? I'm good, and I'm glad to be on this interview. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, you seem to be a little bit of a a walking history book, sir. (laughs) Let's just get into it from the top. Where did you grow up, and what did you like to do when you were a kid?
0: Well, I, I was born in Salt Lake City, 1936. But after the end of the war, my father was a chemist. One of the reasons I got into chemistry, my father and two uncles all got there undergraduate and PhDs at Yale, which I followed later in my career. My two brothers all went to Yale and my cousins went to Yale. Wow. If one of your parents went to Yale, you got in easier, I would say. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. A true family history. That's amazing. So my father helped. He wanted to be a professor, but we're a Jewish family. When he went to his chair way back in, like, 1928, said he wanted to be a professor, the chair of the department said, I'm sorry, I don't recommend Jews to be academics. (laughs) So uh, that's sort of shocking that that happened way back. So he ended up doing various things. And during the war, from about 1933 before the war until after, he helped design build and run an aluminum plant and i used to go out to that plant and see a time plant making aluminum and then at the end of the war they closed the plant we moved east to where my parents were from both parents were from connecticut and uh, more or less moved to connecticut for a few years and then As a teenager in high school, I grew up in Northampton, Massachusetts. After high school, I went to Yale. And I was actually at Yale for uh, seven years because I was an undergrad. And I did something that was always frowned upon, but I decided to do it. I did a lot of research when I was an undergrad. I had already published a couple papers and I decided to stay at Yale for my PhD, even though I got into Harvard. And uh, in my yearbook, it says, you know, it says where you're going. It says, F. Fleischer, going to Harvard to get his PhD. But uh, I actually stayed at Yale. Yeah. You know, do you remember
1: that? You know, because I, gosh, I, I, you know, first of all, I actually, you know, years ago on a family vacation, I went to Yale because there was just something about the reputation of Yale to, to just go see it. You know, it has this, you know, amazing reputation. But Harvard is, is Harvard. <laughs> was it just because of your
0: family history or? Well, you know, I guess I only applied to, I think, two or three schools. Yeah. MIT, Cornell, and Yale. And I, I don't think I had direct pressure to go to Yale, but it's much prettier than Harvard. Mm. When I went to Yale, it was more prestigious for the humanities. They were the strongest humanities, maybe university in the world. And they had a good chemistry department and sort of mediocre uh. I shouldn't say this. The Yalies might not like it. (laughs) When I was an undergrad, I could tell the engineering was mediocre. Chemistry was fine. And I partly went there because I had one nice advantage. I had an uncle and aunt who lived in New Haven, who I was already very close to. And my brothers and I, always used this aunt and uncle as their parents while they were at Yale. Mm-hmm. So that was a nice part of it, Yale. Yeah.
1: Just in terms of the school itself, do you remember, you know, is there anything that you particularly are fond about or just cherish?
0: Well, one of the things I cherished is at Yale, when you're a freshman, you live on what's called the old campus. It's still, I think, where most freshmen live. And it was in these awful old dorms that had been built, who knows, 200 years ago. And then when you're a sophomore through graduation, you go then. There were 10 colleges. They're just dorms, but they're organized around being more like Oxford and Cambridge than just a big dorm. So they had their own library and they had faculty. And that was very nice because it was a pretty small unit. And uh, one of the great things is I had four roommates and we lived on the third floor of the college. And we had two living rooms and four bedrooms, a living room and a bedroom across the hall from each other. It was like going to a nice uh, hotel and it's rare, I think, well, I don't know that much about modern dorms, uh, but to have your own bedroom is a major uh, thing. I always thought, and I I met roommates who, uh, we got along well for the three years we all lived together. And I was in touch with all of them, Two of them died in the last four or five years. I became very close to them, very good friends. An interesting thing, I was the only scientist. This is something that I remember forever. At Yale, the chemistry department is about 10 blocks away from the campus up a hill. And of course, when you're a chemist, you have one or two classes in the morning and then labs. So I was walking up and down that hill, you know, all day. Yeah. Probably it's good for me. And going by some of the most beautiful part of the, of the campus, they have a rare book room that's extraordinary and a hockey rink that's one of the great architectural structures So I love that part. But my roommates were all humanity majors. And I couldn't figure out why they were having so much fun playing cards. (laughs) They were in the bridge and going out during the day. You know, I was either in class or in a lab all day. (laughs) So they humored me, but say, You ought to switch to English (laughs) science. (laughs) Oh, yes. The yin, yang, and rub
1: of humanities versus science or STEM. Very, very funny. So did
0: you study inorganic chemistry? Well, when I was an undergraduate, you just get general Mm. chemistry. But I had to use inorganic chemistry to help solve a problem. My whole life, I've been working on compounds called porphyrins. Almost no one, unless you're a chemist, know what a porphyrin is. But you actually know what they are. Your blood is red because of heme, which is a porphyrin. It's a big round molecule with four nitrogens inside and a metal in the middle, and it has a lot of atoms and it's the thing in your blood that makes your blood red. When you have a lot of atoms and a lot of double bonds, the electrons whizz around those double bonds and that gives it the color. And another porphyrin you really know is chlorophyll. The thing that makes leaves green is a porphyrin. So I somehow wow. fell in love with these. And even though they're all carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen compounds, the important part is what's the action of the iron in the middle or the magnesium in chlorophyll? And when I was working in this field, for many years, there were very few people in the field. They were mainly biochemists trying to understand how hemoglobin works and It was before any x-ray structures of any of these proteins. So I've just always loved porphyrins. But inorganic chemistry is trying to figure out how that iron gets in and out. And uh, then I got involved in other reactions related to that. Gotcha. Very cool. So
1: after graduating with a PhD from Yale... You decided to go to the University of Chicago, right? Right. How did you decide
0: to go there? In those days, when you were a graduate student, and because I did a lot of my work for my PhD, I shouldn't say this, my PhD when I was an undergrad, after two more years, I really had finished all the lab work. And I was very lucky, my supervisor took a sabbatical in Cambridge, England, if you've never been to Cambridge College, you got to go. Is it beautiful? Is it's that why? the most beautiful campus, uh, I think, and I haven't been to every campus, yeah. but it's beyond beautiful. It's just on a river, the Thames, and you can go punting up the river. You get on a little thing that looks like sort of a canoe, but you stand on it. And you pull up the river, it's called Punting. Wow. It has these huge, beautiful buildings built hundreds, not thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago. And it's a great campus. And so, of course, I wasn't a formal member. I just came along with my advisor. Uh, But I used the library to finish writing my thesis. I wrote my thesis there, hmm. and it was important for my personal growth, because for the first time in our lives, we took our first trip. We went around England some, uh, but we took our first trip to the continent and went to Belgium, uh, Holland, France, and uh, to tell you what fun it was. Of course, we didn't have any money. I think I was getting. I don't know how much, almost two or three hundred a month as a grad student. But in those days you could travel on Fromer. He still has a book, but it was Fromer on $10 a day. Right. <laughs> and we paid for our hotels, went to museums, stayed in a hotel, and didn't go over our $10 each for maybe we went on a two-week trip.
1: <laughs> right. Very good. So you're teaching at the University of Chicago
0: and you were there for the 60s, really, up until right. 1970. Right. I went from 61 to 70. Yeah. How did you like teaching there? Well, I love Chicago. It was a very good university. Uh, they were very good to me. I didn't have to teach that much once or a year or something. I had a lot of grants. I was surprised I was good at getting grants because nowadays it takes you at least five years to get a PhD. And if you're going into academics, you put another two or three years as a postdoc. Well, I never postdoc. And uh, luckily, when I went to Chicago, there was a senior faculty member there, a very, very famous inorganic chemist, One of the reasons I wanted to go to Chicago, because when I was a sophomore or junior at Yale, I started reading the literature way back then. I came across his papers and I thought, God, this is the most exciting. He, He opened up organic chemists, almost opened it up to a modern field in the 50s and 60s. And so I knew his work. So I went there and he took me under his wing for about three years before he left and went to Stanford. And I got a lot of my inorganic sort of uh, advising and counseling uh, with him. And he was a very wonder, We, we did things in those days you can't do anymore. I had a little group and it grew to six, eight, 10 people maybe 14 at one point, but in the beginning, I had a very small group, you know, three or four or five new grad students, and every couple days a week and on every Thursday, my group and his group gathered in his lab, and we all drank beer for a few hours while we were just chatting and getting to know each other. Well, of course, now if you ever drink beer in the the lab, you'd be thrown (laughs) out Yes. And I did my best chemistry, and I don't know how to explain this, but the two or three things I did there were things that when I was an undergrad and grad student, I asked some questions about these porphyrins. And they're totally simple questions. When you used to read the books about porphyrins, and there was one, When I started, there was one book about maybe a half to three quarters of an inch that reviewed everything that happened in porphyrins. Then three or four years later, someone came out with a thicker book, maybe two inches. And by then I had done enough work, so I was cited in that book. But when I read that little book, and everywhere else in the literature, it kept saying porphyrins are flat. They're flat molecules. They have these four rings and connected by uh, carbon connectors, and they're just flat. And I kept asking my advisor, well, how did they know they're flat? Well, it's obvious they're flat. And so I just said, there was a guy there who did x-rays, and that's the way you can determine the detailed structure of a molecule or a protein or big things now. Then it was smaller uh, things. And I said, when I get my, I got my job at Chicago, and I said, I'm going to look at the x-ray structures to see if these molecules are flat. So it wasn't any great, it was just a simple idea. Well, it turned out, I did a bunch. I did 10 or 12 structures before I decided to move some on onto a different thing. And almost every structure with slightly different porphyrins substituted in different ways, they almost all were non-planar, some by angstroms out of the plane, which is a lot. You know, an angstrom to a molecule is like, two or three inches to your computer screen. Wow. And they they were all non-planar in different ways.
1: So not flat.
0: That's what you're saying. They weren't flat. And some of them had saddles. Some had domes. Some had up and down. And I luckily did almost all the the non-planarity. And it became very important because... For instance, your hemoglobin and you have other enzymes in your body, probably four or 500 that have hemes in them. Your cytochromes, uh, a whole bunch of your oxidases, your body's full of things that have these porphyrins in them. And it turns out whether they absorb oxygen or not and pass it on, is somewhat dependent on the shape of the heme. So it became a fairly important topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. very good. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI Professor Emeritus in Chemistry, Avery Flesher. And he's had a remarkable career in university academia, and we're just tracing his progress. And so he started at the University of Chicago for about a decade in the 60s. And I was just going to ask him, that was a lot of social upheaval during that time. Professor, did you feel that?
0: Did you see that? Or were you too busy with your work to Uh, to notice? I definitely saw it because we were living in Hyde Park, which was next to very poor neighborhoods. Like during the uh, was the '68 presidential, right? The Democratic
1: convention the, and the they Chicago had riots. All the
0: riots. I had a one of my roommates I talked about earlier. Interesting. Two of these roommates were totally brilliant. Went to Harvard Law School passed the bar. They both had jobs. One had a job with a firm my brother worked in that was one of the leading firms. So they were on their way. The day they passed the bar, they both called me and said, I don't know what I'm doing as a lawyer. I'm quitting today. So they both quit being a lawyer after they had passed the bar. And both went to grad school, one graduated in the social science and one in the humanities. One became a professor at, I think NYU or the new school in New York. And the other was at Johns Hopkins for a while. And he and his wife came to Chicago after he had his uh, PhD for a little postdoc for a year or two. And interestingly, when he was at Yale, he he was, we used to call him Yale Blue. You know, he, he wasn't totally conservative in his politics, but we used to kid him that he had to wear a blue tie when he took a shower to be true to Yale. So he was very sort of traditional and he started dating a young woman from Vassar. So in those days, your girlfriends came down to Yale or you went to my my wife's girlfriend was at Smith in Northampton. So his girlfriend would come from upper New York and she was very interesting because it was uh, 56, maybe 55 when we first met her. She was literally the first hippie in the East Coast. (laughs) She would come down, and none of the girls, women, excuse me, women dressed, she would always come with a black, flowing, loose dress, flowers in her hair, uh, talking, you know, the way the hippies eventually Mm. talked about the world and what should happen. So she was way ahead of her time. So they got married, and after, must have been five or six or seven years of marriage, he became very Mm hippie-ish. He actually studied communism and communist China and what they were about. He was very smart. But when she had sort of converted him to this hippie type, even though he was doing serious work, Uh, They got divorced.
1: Mm.
0: Well, during that time, my wife did not like Chicago. It was too, you know, you're living right on the edge of the slums and in very, you know, combative Chicago. Mm -hmm. There were gangs where we lived. Every night they'd come and try your door. They had a gimmick where... They'd go around the whole neighborhood and just go to the doors and try them. And one out of a hundred doors would be unlocked and they'd open it, whoever they were, and they never would come in. They'd just go in. And of course, most people leave their wallets, their whatever keys. Yeah. Uh, they just grab what they could. Yeah. So, yeah. And then our children got to be seven, eight, and, so I kept telling my wife, all universities are in this kind of <laughs> area. And, I, uh, and at that, po- that point, in t- when I was at Yale, it was pretty nice. No real city problems, some. But 10 or 15 years later, they had to put guards in and metal on all the windows at Yale. Mm-hmm. It really... St- Start. I said, "Well, I can't go back. Not that they probably w- wouldn't want me, but I can't go back to Yale because they're a slum. Berkeley's sort of a slum. Johns Hopkins, Harvard's not so great. So I try to find all these places. And then I made the mistake in about '68. I was invited by this famous guy who, by then, I think had won the Nobel Prize." He was at Stanford. He asked me to come out, and they might be looking me over, whatever, and uh, teach his class on inorganic chemistry because he was doing something else. So we went out there and lived in what's called Los Altos Hills, mm-hmm. and it's it's only about five or six miles from the campus. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's sort of a horse place. Right. No, it's uh, our next door neighbor, two of them had horses, and our uh, seven or eight-year daughter came home one night. My wife said, Debbie's riding a horse. I said, what what do you mean? How can she get on a horse? So Debbie said, I'll show you. So the next door neighbor bought the horse down and gave her a command, and she put her knees down (laughs) on the ground so the kids could climb on.
1: Oh, wow. Very good. So it sounds like your family was
0: sold on California and somehow you heard about Irvine. Yeah. And that was another great accident. I guess life is full of these, but this one. uh, So when I went back to Chicago, I said, and some faculty member, maybe 10 percent, lived up in Winnetka to the north or another group to the south about 30 miles so you could commute and so i said uh i'll test commuting so i got on the train and tried it both south and north and then i drove both times and i came home one day and said you know i'd be dead because if i was driving yeah I'd be thinking of my chemistry and go off the road. (laughs) So I put out the word uh, I wanted a job, especially I called this friend of mine uh, from Stanford. And I was at an American Chemical Society meeting. And I was walking down the hall and sitting on the hall was... uh, Was the gentleman on the bench, Sherry Rowland? Yes, it was Sherry Rowland and uh, the other Nobel Prize winner, his name will come. Was it Mario Molina? No, no, it was from Stanford. Oh, okay. He was from Stanford. Uh, I mean, I should know his name as well as my own, probably. But nevertheless, as uh, I was walking by, uh, Sherry turned to him and said, you know, we're looking for an inorganic chemist do you know anyone? And right then I was walking by and he said, see that young guy there, hire him. <laughs> so the next thing I knew, I didn't hear the story until quite a bit later after I got to know Sherry. So in a couple of weeks, he called me and said, "Would I come for an interview. Yeah. And uh, I came out and we loved it. We bought a brand new house in, uh, the uh, University uh, Hills or no University Hills didn't come for about 30 years. Oh, uh, the, they've got a name, the something streets there. Oh, the they're, port streets, a port street, port yeah. province. Yeah. And uh, we bought this house for $38,000 and uh, 1971 right. right. and uh, we sold it 10 years later when I went to uh, Colorado. And right. I've, I've never paid enough attention or attention at all to how do I get more money in the world. But I've sold two, or th- two houses in California and made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, so now you spent the uh, 60s in Chicago, and now you spend the 70s in Irvine. You're teaching chemistry, and you also become the Dean of Physical Sciences. How did you like those new administrative responsibilities?
0: Well, the way that got started is Hal Moore, who was one of the original faculty members and very distinguished organic chemist. He died about three years ago, I think. In those days, we had a very small faculty, 12, 14, I don't know, maybe a few more. And he was chair. And I had been at, at Irvine for maybe two and a half years. And I don't think I was 40 yet. And I was a professor then. And so he, he did not like being chair, even though later he became a, the dean and was a very good dean. He uh, did some major things to the school. So he came to me one day and he said, Ev, my stomach's gone. I, all I do is drink uh, white powders or whatever. I'm quitting. Would I be chair? I said, well, I don't know. Uh, and, and I don't, in those days, if you were chair, you still taught. Nowadays, the chair, the dean, they, they don't ever teach because they have too much to do. At least that's what they all say. (laughs) And when I was chair, I sort of liked the idea of dealing with people and trying to help them make their life better. (laughs) It's always what I try to do is when I'm an administrator and uh, try to be straightforward and honest. And if people aren't doing good work, you tell them. And I've gotten into a fair amount of trouble over the years because of that attitude. But I sort of like being chair. And then to my surprise, uh, in 75, the dean decided to step down. He had been there a while. And he still, of course, hadn't won his Nobel Prize yet, but that's a different story. And so they had a search and they asked me to be dean, which surprised me in a way because I didn't have much experience, you know, dealing with 10 or 15, and I was young. I had been in academics for maybe 15 years, which is a pretty short time to take a dean's job on. And I sort of got interested enough, so I wasn't paying as much attention to my sciences. Maybe I either should have or could have. And there are other reasons for that. But an interesting thing about physical science and and the dean is, of course, I have a, since I was in the school and I've been back retired in the school for 22 years, I think physical science is as far as I know, the the best school of all the schools. And one of the reasons for that, and I talked to some of the other deans, Ken Janda just retired as dean. He was, I was very close friends of his. He was a fabulous dean. And he came from inside the department. And he did a lot of really good things, a lot in teaching labs and hiring new people. He was very, very good dean. But the point is, physical science is the only school on the campus that has always had an insider be dean. All the other schools go outside and they have these big national searches and they get someone. And it usually, let me put it this way, it it doesn't work to their advantage to do that, I think.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: and I also have another standard. If you're a big school now, I mean, our school has, I don't know, 250 faculty. All the schools have two or 300 faculty. If you have two or 300 faculty, many who've been there for quite a while and you can't find someone who can be your dean I always find that a problem Mm. any, you know, the other schools will probably yell at you since they maybe won't find me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think it is an important issue in the university.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I don't know if you've already addressed this, but one of your colleagues did say to ask you, did you ever have any trouble with faculty members when you were Dean I would say
0: at Colorado, which was very big, I had 25 departments and five small units. So I had a lot of faculty. I don't remember how many, but, you know, probably near eight or 900, maybe more. And I was a much different dean than they had had. They have deans there. Well, when I came, they'd had a dean who'd been there for 27 years. When I came, I was a totally different kind of dean. I would write letters to the trustees when they gave money to athletics, especially. I'd write these letters. In Colorado, they were an elected set of trustees, not appointed. And it wasn't all positive because people who were elected maybe had no idea of what a university was. So I would many times get in trouble. And after I had been Dean just maybe three or four months, I have to look it up. I wrote a letter to all the thousand faculty that said, "Uh, here are my expectations. And it was about a half a page. And it said, you have to take your teaching very seriously and spend time making sure you're doing a good job and you make sure the students are getting good instruction and you take care of their needs and and you think about new ways to teach and new courses. And I said, two, you have to have reviewed work No matter if you're in the art department, you have to have your paintings reviewed. If you're in physics and chemistry and the other departments, you have to have your work reviewed. And it has to be very high quality work that's read or cited. However, I can't remember how I put that. And then I said, third, you have to be a good citizen and academic citizen, both internally to the university and publicly to the nation you know you should be on you know do things where you're helping your specialty and going to meetings etc mm-hmm. well <laughs> i got a backlash there were some faculty and a lot of them that i knew were in english and the humanities and there was a rule in the college that if you got 50 signatures or a hundred signatures, you could force the dean, me, to have a an open symposium on this document I wrote. And I thought, oh my, oh my. <laughs> and the next thing I knew is these meetings were run by Robert's rules of order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I never in my life, ever <laughs> in my life, had been in a meeting. I knew, who knows Robert's rules? <laughs> people do know it. So I actually found a parliamentarian just in case. And, and I got to know some of the people who were the troublemakers and the head troublemaker. So they wrote this thing you know, the dean has no right to ask us to do these things, blah, 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 blah. So, I went to this meeting and I was slightly, more than slightly nervous, partly because I didn't know what was going to happen and I didn't know Robert's rules of order. But I had a little plan. First of all, all the strong faculty came besides maybe their 40, 50 out of a thousand who think, you know, the university should pay you and you do what you want you don't have to do any serious research. So I got up and there were a lot of people. It filled the whole auditorium we had. And I knew, I can't remember his name now, but I stood up and I said, okay, the meeting's coming to order. And I pointed to the guy who was the troublemaker. And I said, Jim, what part of my document do you have a gripe about? And he got up. I said, well, you know, is it this part, that part? And after a few minutes, I realized he had never even read that little document. You know, it wasn't like it was an encyclopedia. It was less than a half a page. Mm -hmm. And so I just said, I'm sorry you didn't read it. Let someone who read it and wants to complain about it, tell me your complaints. Well, that little thing changed the whole room. And after about 40 minutes of mostly the good people saying, yeah, this is good. Maybe since you're a scientist, you don't quite know the right words to use for the humanist and how the artist, whatever. And at the end, the guy who started it and wrote the complaint after about an hour. Uh, he stood up and he said, I move we accept this document
1: for this college. <laughs> Very good, Professor. Hey do we, we have to push on. Excuse me just okay. one more time. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is UCI Emeritus Professor Every Flesher, who is taking us on a wonderful long walk along his career and sharing stories. And at this point, he moves from UCI, it's about 1980, to Boulder, Colorado for at the University of Colorado. What brought this move on, sir? I
0: mean, how did I get to Colorado? A faculty member, well-known physicist, came out here to be here for a month or something and he got to know me. He wrote me, he said, look, we have a deanship open here. I want you to apply for it. And I did, and you know, I love California, but Colorado is beautiful. And it, it turned out it was the best job I've in terms of administration. It was unusual, especially compared to California. I didn't have a lot of money, But I had almost no constraints. In California, you have a lot of money, although people will complain there's not enough, but a lot. But you have a lot of constraints. You have to have the Senate. Every time you move here, you have to get permission. And so that made it easy. And the other thing that I love there besides close to skiing, I was a big skier when I was in high school and hadn't skied until I came to Irvine, actually. So I spent all my undergraduate, graduate, and Chicago years without skis. And then here I did, because Hal Moore skied and his whatever. So I went there. An interesting point (laughs) about my being hired there. And this is just common now, and I find it just offensive. So I applied and I gave them what I had done as a scientist and a chemist and what I had tried to do. Now, I was at a small school for five years when I was pretty young. I was just learning. So, you know, I didn't know whether they wanted someone really at the top of their game while they went there. So I applied and all of a sudden I got a letter. From the search committee. And the letter said, Would you answer these 25 questions? And, you know, it's the kind of questions you ask, but they're so stupid to me. <laughs> I don't know. You know, what have you done good? Whatever. Um, so I looked at these and I called my friend, Carl Leinberger, and I said, Look, I'm sorry, this might upset the apple cart. But it doesn't say much about the university when they ask these stupid mm. questions. Mm. If they want to ask, invite me out and I'll try to tell them what I think I can do and can't do and what I think is important and not important. Mm. But these really, I, I should have saved those. And so he went to the He wasn't on the search committee. He went to the search committee and he was sort of powerful faculty. He said, invite (laughs) him.
1: Very good. So how long did you spend in Colorado? Was it another 10 years?
0: Eight years. About eight years. And then my wife wife complains I couldn't hold a job more than eight or nine years.
1: (laughs) Well, following on those words. You then moved to the University of Riverside, which must have been a pretty new college at that point, I think, or university, and you become
0: executive vice chancellor. Is that true? Yes. And it was was actually a few years older than UCI. Okay. It was started as an experiment station, and it still is one of the world's best experiment stations, Davis and Riverside are the two places where they study how to grow avocados, blah, blah. Mm. It was the powerhouse.
1: So to move there and become executive vice chancellor, that's... You know,
0: I was, you know, my, my job, because I had no sub, it was a different job. Because I had no associate deans at Colorado. And the thing I loved about it, I interacted with the departments. And what I loved, and I was going to lose in Riverside, is I was interested what psychologists do and study. And I was interested what the English department does and their poetry and this. And I was interacting every day with some of the faculty and, and chairs, et cetera. So I moved to Riverside and... I can just say it was not a good experience for me. (laughs) I was there about eight years. I did some good things there, but my wife always said to me, do you have to keep writing the regents, telling them they're bloody idiots giving (laughs) money to football and not physics? (laughs) Uh, And I would almost put it in those words. Can't you keep your mouth shut a little bit more? And so I promised her after about a year and a half or less than a year, an issue came up where I took the side of a young woman who worked for the chancellor. And over the next 10 years, there was a huge fight between myself and the chancellor. and It just fell apart and uh, then she died. And then a new chancellor from UCLA came aboard really great physicist. And, you know, when a new chancellor comes in, I was ready to retire. Mm -hmm. I kept thinking I had the choice of retiring with the uh, special retirement that the university did in the 93 and 94. I can't remember where you got an extra eight years of time, et cetera, et cetera. So if I took that and either went off and did something else, I'd be making as much as I'd make if I went back to be a professor. And uh, since my science had sort of, I still did a lot of reading, but it wouldn't have worked out to go back to be a scientist. So I left there in 95, yeah. And then you came back to UCI as, as a visiting professor, is that right? Well, I, I was a retired professor, and I was a visiting professor, and I taught a little for a couple of years. And actually, coming back, because of Larry Oberman and the department, they gave me this nice office and access to labs. And I actually went in the labs and did a bunch of research myself, You know, it's hard to go back to yourself after so many years of being away. But I got some papers published and some nice work done. And then I used to kid people. I said, when the campus either had a job that no one else wanted to do or no one else could do, they asked me to help them out and do it. (laughs) And the most interesting job I did that was a sort of a chore and unusual, if maybe singular. There was a department in social ecology with about 12 or 13 or 14 faculty that I was asked to go in and close. And uh, I don't think universities tend to close departments by letting everyone who's a faculty member die. (laughs) And then (laughs) the last death, they they close it. Uh, but this department, which was, uh, yeah, was called EHSP environmental health and science policy. And it didn't fit. It was in a social science school and it was a science base. So from the beginning, it never worked and it was having problems. So that took a year and, uh, I worked with Vice Chancellor Godforson and got it all done. And I got every faculty member to a new department. They had a lot of majors, three or 400 majors. And so some of them were freshmen, sophomores. I figured out how to send the faculty to new departments but have enough teaching so all these kids got their degrees. And then, you know, recently... Keep my, my nose in science. I've always been a big reader of journals. Well, nowadays, chemists, physicists, they don't have time to read the literature, almost, because they spend so it's not as good as it was when I was young. <laughs> now the, the faculty have to spend a lot of their time writing grants. If you're in any science, you know, I'm next to people who are always writing grants. Until COVID came, I had about 25 journals and I had a book with them. And every month I'd go through and I'd glance through them. And when there was an article I thought was interesting or I was always on the watch for an article that used my work in their work, because that's always a nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the third thing I did that I think I made a good contribution as an old faculty member is I more or less knew what a bunch of people did in the department. And when I saw an article that I thought they might be interested in, I'd send them a copy. And I'd always put a note on it and I was sending 10 or 12 of those a month, at least. I'd always put a note on it. You know, if you don't want this, just tell me. Mm -hmm. It needs to stop. They all said, thanks. I don't have time to do this. Right. So Mm -hmm. at one point in COVID, I sort of gave that up too. (laughs) Gotcha.
1: Professor, just maybe one last thing. In terms of your your long career that is... uh, truly amazing can you speak of any point in time that you felt like you know it was it it wasn't such a good time like you had adversity and you know for students out there oftentimes they I think they probably think that professors are just naturals and they're really good at what they do and they don't have adversity does anything come to mind that you can can say, you know, what you did to see your way out of that, you know, whether it was grind your way through or I didn't, does anything come to mind?
0: Uh, well, let's see if I should bring this up, but it's not that. So when I, when I moved, when I was at the University of Chicago and I was a young guy, I didn't, you know, what did I know about the whole grad student, postdoc, et cetera. Uh, But my grad students there and postdocs, because the University of Chicago is such a great institution, my grad students were superior. And why they were superior is the University of Chicago had one of the best physical chemistry departments in the world. I don't know anymore, but it was top three or four. They always said first, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Very strong department. So their grad students were outstanding. And the students I used to get were ones that were really physical chemists who were sort of physicists working on chemical problems. And, you know, when you're a grad student, you go around and talk to different people. And it turned out I used to get two to four of these physical grad students coming into my group because they could do physical chemistry. They did x-ray crystallography and nuclear mag. So they could do physics kind of things, but on a little more interesting compounds than the theorists and the whatever. And so I had really absolutely, and I didn't understand that Irvine was five years old when I came. So their grad students in the beginning were not superstars, let's put it that way. And what happened is, you know, the faculty here adjusted to that because that's what they had. And as we got better and better and better, of course, it became a better place for doing chemistry. But the shift sort of threw me off my balance. And then I became a chair. But I mean, that's no excuse. And I just couldn't totally adjust to getting my science back at the level I wanted. So what I did, and it was a great move for me, especially uh, Colorado, where I had 10 fantastic years. Moved towards a different area than basic chemistry. I was going to be an administrator. Mm,
1: interesting. Okay. Well, Professor, we've gone over time. Thank you so much for being with us and, and taking us on the on the journey of your career. Thank you for all the work you did with all the students over the years and uh it's been a pleasure missed, to meet you. I missed
0: one story I wanted to tell. Go ahead. Maybe I'll you see can, where if I you can sp- take it out. Uh here's one of the reasons that got me into chemistry. One, my father was a chemist. I used to go to his aluminum plant. So I was maybe eight or ten, so that would be forty-six. My father said, I have a hundred dollar challenge for you. And if you do this, I'll give you a hundred bucks. What is it? If you memorize the periodic table and, you know, all their names and you can put them in the table from scratch and know their atomic weights to two places. I've never had a good memory, but I thought, oh, this can't be that hard. Yeah. Yeah. bucks. <laughs> Yeah, that's a a lot of money. My father was not only brilliant, but he was wise. Uh, So I get to his periodic table and I'm working. And a week or two weeks, I memorize the elements and where they go. When I was 10, I knew it better than most of my career, even though I was staring at it all day and then i started memorizing hydrogen's 1.007 you know helium's but you had to do it to two places so when you got in the in the uh, about halfway you'd be at iron i don't remember 48.63 or whatever and it was clear i probably wasn't going to make it cuz i would get up about halfway and I just couldn't get the next one. If I got the next one, I'd forget one ten before. So after another few weeks, I went to my father and I said, "You know, I can write out the periodic table. I know it, and uh, it's pretty interesting. All these atoms that make up the world and the everything in the universe." Right. I said, "But I'll never be able to do the." He probably knew what knew all the to two places or three. And so he looked at me, and he said, well, that's good. You've learned a lot. So I thought he was gonna say, and here's the hundred bucks. Yeah. He said, but we had an agreement, so you don't get any money. <laughs> so.
1: So the, the was... lesson learned was you have to do the whole job or you don't get paid. <laughs> right, right. Oh, <laughs> uh, very good. Thank you, professor. Okay. It was It okay. was a
0: joy. Okay, good. Thanks
1: for all the help and guiding. Thank you again to Professor Emeritus in Chemistry, Everly Fleischer, for his walk through the history books of his career. Some things have changed, but the pursuit of academic excellence is alive and well and here to stay. Hear, hear for the search for light. And in Professor Fleischer's case, the search for one great golf game. Good luck, sir. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold, with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot-zot-zot everyday anteaters. If you'd like to hear an encore of this episode or any other past program, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And suggestions and comments are always welcome at my email address, kboss at kuci.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening and always promising you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. on UCI Conversations, right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. So long, everybody. Happy Trails!